I have to say it's a little surreal uh, to be here with just a handful of people, uh, not here with all of you guys. Uh, as you know, I'm coming to you from my super secret mountain lair bunker, um, a.k.a. the Fellowship Center, to, uh, to be able to speak to you guys today, try to encourage you a little bit, challenge you some out of the Word of God. Uh, a lot of people are asking, what do you do uh, in quarantine? You want your Bible? very important. You want to be able to get some encouraging messages. And then, of course, you have the, what I'm calling now, the corona currency. Uh, Got to have plenty of that. Apparently, I, I'm not quite sure exactly why there was a run on toilet paper, but there was. And so I've decided to go around our community and just spare a square and help out folks, um, you know, that may not have any. I want to be known as the Charmin Shaman when this is over. So... I hope you're laughing out there because I have to say, I feel like Trent here, you know, telling jokes to a, an audience that can't laugh. But, uh, and Trent, by the way, if you're watching, we love you. Uh, he was watching last week, sent us a nice note. So we miss you here, uh, and your bad jokes. But I want to get into it today. It's, it's a weird thing to be, as we're asked to do, to pull together by pulling apart. I mean, basically that's what we've been asked to do. And the only thing any of us, I guess, in, in, in our lifetimes, those of us, uh, you know, my age and younger, can think about is maybe 9-11. But, you know, that didn't last very long. And we could still kind of, you know, come together as a church and pray about it and assure one another. And yet everything now is having to be done basically through the computer, through television. And so it is what it is. Uh, it's a new age. And yet we're going to do the best we can. And so I thought about a lot of different things to share, but you know, I had this message planned for you guys last week. I think it's, it's powerful. It spoke to me. And part of me just kind of wants to get back to normal Bible study. You know, it challenges us in every way. And sometimes, you know, we get into everything having to be about this virus and this quarantine. But instead, uh, I just want to challenge you this morning out of John chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, I know some of you are meeting in groups, which is great, in small groups, and then others are with your family. And, and I just want to encourage you to spend this time together uh, in the Word of God. It's, it's actually a great blessing and a good opportunity that we don't get very often to do. We're in John chapter 2, uh, beginning of verse 12. And the last time we were in John, we talked about this wedding uh, that Jesus was at. And it, some people almost look at it like the accidental miracle. You know, basically his mom comes to him and says, you know, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, why are you coming to me? You know, it's not my time yet. And so she looks around and says, hey, whatever he says, do it. And so he basically turns 180 gallons of water into wine. Really good wine, I might add, because Jesus is quite the winery guy. And so, you know, there's plenty of wine. At, at first, it looks like, why does this what look like your first miracle uh, that you want to do? But he was really, as we find out, look at the story. There's two people, two people, I think, that are in play there. One is his mom. Uh, and the people, obviously she was friends with these people that the wedding was at. So she didn't want them to be dishonored. And so she asked him to basically just do a hospitality thing. And he did it for her, which I think is pretty cool that Jesus thinks that much of his mom. And then the other one was the disciples, because as they look at it, you know, they said, wow, you know, I think we follow the right guy, a guy that can turn water into wine. So there was a purpose. It wasn't like he was just, you know, showing off. But we get to this next setting, and so it's after this wedding. And so here's what happens, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. So you see, they're all still together. They've gone to the wedding, and now they're heading down to Capernaum. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem. 
Now, Jesus had been going to Passover every year of his life. This was required of the Jews. Every year at Passover, you go there, all the Jews remember what happened. Of course, Passover was a, a huge event that happened in Jewish history, and God wanted to remember. There was blood on a doorpost that came from a, a, a little lamb, and so the idea was is that death passed over uh, because of this. And so this was an important time, but G- this is going to be a little bit different than his past times to go. Of course, I couldn't help but thank him when I got into this. You remember the time he went when he was 12 years old? Uh, what happened is in Luke chapter two. If you want to turn over there uh, and read along, you can Luke chapter two in, in verse 44, uh, thinking he was in their company, meaning Jesus, they, Joseph and Mary and their family traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. Did this ever happen? You know, some kid got left behind and you thought he was with grandma and you thought somebody else. And now all of a sudden everybody goes into panic mode, right? When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for it. So we got a day out. We got a day back. After three days, so now we're up to five days. Can you imagine the panic that has ensued? This huge city. Now all the Jews have come from all over Israel uh, because of the Passover. And so, I mean, it's bustling. It's crowded. And they're looking for Jesus for five days. They found him in the temple courts. So it's basically the first edition of Home Alone. I call it Temple Alone because Jesus got left behind at the temple. But imagine what happens when they walk into the setting and here they find him. He's in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, which tells you something about the Son of God. He's, he's, although he's 12, he's listening, but he is the Son of God. But he's asking them questions. And it's really interesting because, you know, obviously they're noticing there's something different about this kid. I'm sure, because it says everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So we got a little Bible class going on here. Jesus is soaking it up, but then he's giving it back. And he's 12 years old. And I wonder how much awareness he has at that moment. Well, we know the boy had promise, right? Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now, I don't think this was good astonished. I mean, he was doing something amazing. But I imagine after five days of looking for your kid, this is not the good kind of astonishment when they come on this scene. They're astonished. And here's why I think think that's true. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? What do you think you're doing? I mean, have you ever said that to your kids? What in the world? Get over here. You're used to that snatch a knot in my head is typically what happened, right? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And I've always seemed like that's the most surreal setting of a story I've ever seen because here Jesus is still a 12-year-old boy who's under the care of parents. And yet, oh, by the way, he's the son of God. He's God in flesh, even at 12. So what happens? He says, why were you searching for me? Duh. Didn't you know I'd be here? He says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Wow. So he does have an awareness of who he is. And he does know something even at 12 about his purpose and why he was here. Some versions say about my father's business. So you think about it in that moment. He's 12 years old, but he has an understanding. But we're going to talk about a little bit later this when we get back to John 2, that Jesus, this is a special place to him. He's drawn to it and he's drawn to it for a reason. In verse 50 
back in Luke, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth, and I love this, and was obedient to them. So, you know, at the end of the day, he realizes he's still 12. He's got to listen to Mary and Joseph. He's got to do what he's told. He's got to be obedient. I'm thinking he probably got punished. They didn't let him use his iPad, you know, on the trip back to Nazareth. Who knows? But he may have gotten grounded. The son of God getting grounded. Have you ever thought about that before? Pretty amazing, right? And yet he was obedient. He understood his role. Jesus always understood what it was to be a man and a boy and a child as much as he understood later what it was to be God. That's how powerful this story is. And there's nothing else like it out there. And that's why we believe it. So let's fast forward back to John 2. Jesus is now 30 years old. And what makes this trip special is because this was his first time to go to Passover is what I'm calling a made man. I mean, remember, he's been recognized as the Lamb of God. John the Baptist says, this is the one we've been looking for. A few people have recognized it. They've been seeing some things, the people at the wedding, others. And now, all of a sudden, he's going into Passover with a completely different mindset. So here's what happens. Look at verse 14. In the temple courts, remember, that's where 18 years earlier, he was sitting on those same temple courts, sharing and listening. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle. Sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, just to give you a setting, typically people came to Passover. There were sacrifices that were made. And the idea was, going back to the Old Testament, the, the tabernacle and, the, and later the temple, is you would bring your sacrifice. That means something that's animals that you raised, things that you took care of. But what's happened is now is this has just turned into a little commerce system. Nobody's bringing anything. You just show up. There'll be people there. They'll buy. You can buy things and go in. And it's a transaction. What used to be transformational is now transactional. That's what's happened in the setting. And here's how Jesus responds to it. Not happy. He says in verse 15, so he made a whip out of cords. Oh, Jesus done went to whipping. And he drove all from the temple courts. Can you imagine what this looked like? He just had a big old divine holy hissy fit right there in the temple courts. Sheep and cattle. He's driving. He's scattering. He's hitting. People are like, what in the world? It's turned into pandemonium. He scattered coins. He's turning over tables. Money changers are flying. To those who sold the doves, <laughs> the poor dove salesman, he says, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered in that moment, even that is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And that's out of Psalm 69, which is a really interesting read. You need to go over there and check that out uh, because it's a lot of messianic stuff in there. But David is basically in a bind. And so I think there's some good relationship to this text. But you see what happens. Jesus is highly offended. He's offended. He's offended because this special place, this because the, the purpose was a connection to Yahweh. I mean, because of sin, you know, we, we started out in the garden and there's this close connection between God, the Son, the, the Father, and the Spirit, and mankind. And sin has separated that. So now the system by which God has come up with for his people is there's this temple and there's this once a year sort of encounter and the presence of God is there slightly and there's a connection. And so it's very special. He made it to be special. And yet they've turned it into some kind of marketplace. 
There's a connection to other people. He's asked people to come together once a year for Passover, which is very special. To be reminded, you've been delivered from slavery. You've been delivered from tyranny. And yet now look what's happened. So this great divider is there. and He's offended. I believe the greatest reason that Jesus was offended at what was going on is because he is God. So it wasn't just that he was offended about the father. He was personally offended at what was going on there. People were coming there with no heart for worship, with no heart for sacrifice. And instead, they were just turning it into punch the clock, buy the thing, hit the road and get back home. That sounds familiar. Can that happen in the modern day? We'll talk more about that later. You see, the problem with the people is what we see later in the text. First of all, they're blinded by unbelief. Look at verse 18. So here's the Jews' response. Now, he doesn't come in and throw in a big old hissy fit. He's run people out, and everybody's sort of bewildered. Who is this guy? So here's their response. And you can just see the unbelief and hear it in what they say. The Jews responded to him this way. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? In other words, who do you think you are? He's coming here dumping stuff over, telling us what we're supposed to do. We need a sign for that. You need to be doing some miracles, Jack. Well, this is the first of many demands of proof of authority. We're going to see it over and over and over again throughout his ministry. And so, basically, what happens is, it's the same thing that happens today. People are so focused on wanting to see a miracle, that if they don't see at all the miracle worker, they missed it. People still do that. Expect a miracle. Everything's about the miracle. What about the miracle worker? What about the guy who's doing it? That should be the focal point. When you believe, that's what happens. So, Jesus' response to their question, and their unbelief, is this. In verse 19. Jesus said, here's, I love about Jesus. Here's his answer to what sign can you give us to prove that you, you know, you have the authority? Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. What you talking about, Willis? What is, what does that mean? Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. What they didn't know was this was a huge sign. What he was talking about. This was big. It was a big, beautiful sign that Satan would pay for. And they didn't even know it. What's he talking about? They don't even get it. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? (laughs) What a crock. What a crackpot. And yet what he was talking about was his resurrection. You want some proof? That I have the authority to do anything? You just hold on to your fermented wine and watch this. I'm going to come back from the dead. That's what he was telling them. Just a little deep. The temple he had spoken of was his body. John's going to let us in on it. After he was raised from the dead, now catch this. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They, they remembered you remember that time when Jesus just went out there and went off on the temple? He, you remember that? You remember what he said that about the temple in three days? Then, only then, you're telling me that these 12 guys that followed him around this whole time saw all the miracles, saw all the things he did, that they never really believed until after he was raised from the dead. That's what John said. Then 
See what happens when you look at the miracle instead of the miracle worker? You can miss it, even if you're right there close. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken to them. So you see, people are not only blind in their unbelief, but they're deaf as well. They won't listen. They won't listen to what he's trying to tell us. Jesus uses what we call some directional dialogue here. He's going to point to something that's three years away. Say, boys, you better listen. That's what happens when you're deaf. People won't listen. He's always been looking for earnest seekers. That's why he spoke in parables. That's why he did what he did. That's why he spoke in stuff like this. A lot of times people say today, well, Al, you know, I, I got this guy. I, I want to try to lead him to Christ, but I'm not sure what can I do to lead him to Christ as if it's us. And I always say, look, I love your heart. Keep praying. Keep talking. Make the most of every opportunity. But you do know that a person can't find salvation unless they're seeking it, unless they're looking and they're listening. They have to want to come out of unbelief. We're simply the conduits to make it happen. We've all, through the years, I thought, man, if we could just come up with the right plan, it's like a vacuum cleaner salesman. If I had the right plan, if I had the right marketing in place, and we even hear that, oh, if the church has got to look like a business, bah, da, 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 da. No, we just put the message out. Seekers will find. They'll find us. I see it happen all the time. They just show up here. Somebody emails me and says, hey, I'm seeking. I get messages from everywhere. Unashamed has opened me up to the whole world as to what people are doing and seeking. We need to be able to show them Jesus, not just the sign and not something else, but Jesus. So they're blind and they're deaf and they're unbelief. And sometimes they're just dumb in their shallow faith. So in verse 23, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in him, in his name. They believed in the phenomenon that was Jesus, the rabbi who can do things. They believed in the guy who could have a fish fry and 5,000 people could eat. They believed in that. But catch this. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He knew, see. You can't fool him. Well, I'm, I'm looking good. You know, I'm attending services. But he knows you. He knows what's inside. He wouldn't entrust himself, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So some people say, man, I'm going to get out and testify my testimony. About what's going on. But if it's not real and if it's not pure, and if it's, you really haven't found Christ, he knows. He won't entrust himself to that. You see, people lie. People lie. People decommit. People run with the herd. People panic over toilet paper. That's people. Faith grounds us. It shows us who Christ is. So what does all this mean for us today? Because they said, man, that's a pretty interesting story, but why are we talking about it today? Well, because the ultimate problems of humanity haven't changed, really. People look to signs instead of the Savior. They do it all the time. And as I said, they panic. People aren't trustworthy in their faith. So Jesus would not entrust himself to them. James 2, James puts it like this. This is the half-brother of Jesus. 
you see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Catch this. As he was called God's friend. See what happens? The intimate relationship? That's trustworthy. I don't know about you, but I want to be considered by God to be his friend. Because he can rely on me. I'll be there. I mean, God, you can trust me because I trust you. I know I'm weak and I know I'm a sinner and I'm not perfect. But I believe and I will do what you ask me to do. That's what we're talking about. I want Jesus to entrust himself to me and not say, ah, ow, mm -mm." You remember the story of Job when God tells Satan in heaven or wherever they were, have you considered my servant Job? He trusted him. He's blameless and upright. That's a powerful moment. Now, if you're in Job's shoes, and one of us looks at it and thinks, God, I just do not get all the trust because what happened next was not good. It's not always good when God trusts us to call on him, to not fall short, and not, to not denounce him. He's saying, check him out. Check her out. I love it in Job 1, verse 20. It's one of my favorite passages. It's so amazing. And it really speaks to me in this current crisis. After he loses his family, after he loses everything he had, the stock market for his day plummets. Everything gone. Family gone. Awful. He fell to the ground in worship. See that? He worshiped in the worst moment of his life. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I'll depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's trustworthy. That's that's how I want to respond in everything that's going on today. I want to worship and I want to say, you know what? I don't have any guarantees in this life, but I do know this thing. God is going to raise me one day, and I trust in him, and he can trust in me. It's a great way to look at ourselves today. You see, worship and words are meaningless. That's why Jesus went in turning stuff over. It's just rabble and transactions. It's meaningless without a transformed, resurrected life and heart. That's what God wants from us. That's why he says, when you worship me, when you bring your sacrifices to me, that's what you bring to me. So, what did the Savior teach me in this episode? When God doesn't get glory, it should bother us. Sometimes we just got to throw a good old hissy fit. I don't know about you, but that's usually what motivates me. When I find just so disgusted with the situation, I'm like, you know what? We're fixing to make some changes around here. I started to diet three months ago because I kept looking at my clothes, and for some reason they were getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And finally I was just like, you know what? You can't keep doing this, Al. You don't make a change unless something motivates you internally. Jesus went down there flipping tables over. He got mad. Sometimes things should bother us in our life, in our marriage. You say, well, yeah, get mad at her because it's her fault. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Start with you. And then start working to help everybody else. Sometimes things should bother us. And the second thing is resurrection is the key 
to active living faith. It always comes back to that, and it does in this story as well. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In other words, the resurrection is the key to everything. And Jesus was telling that in John 2. You want a sign? You wait. And now we look back. We're still looking back to the resurrection. When people are panicking, we don't panic like the rest of men who have no hope. Why? Because we believe in the resurrection. If a virus takes your life, the Almighty will restore you completely. That's what gives us hope. It gives us a transformation. That's why in Romans 6, Paul would say, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, man, if grace is so great, let's just pile it on. Wait a minute. By no means. We have died to sin. How can we live in any longer? See, there's another resurrection. You died to that. And then he goes on and he talks about what baptism is. That it's the burial and the resurrection. It's the sign that this is a new life, a transformed life. A life that's going to impact other people. That's what we've been called to. And it doesn't matter what we face. Resurrection is the key. And the third thing is that I've learned from this is that I want to live in such a way that God trusts me. And therefore, Jesus can entrust himself to me so that I can entrust him to other people. That's what I want the Almighty to see in me. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You see, there's the caveat. That's the key to resurrection. We come forth as a new son or a new daughter. The Holy Spirit is there now. That changes everything. He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance of eternal life. And not only that, Jesus said he will guide you. He will counsel you. He will bear fruit through your life. Incredible. The Holy Spirit is the changer. You know what happens now? You know why he was so offended at that temple? That one place where the presence of God would come for the people is that now he knew whenever he left here, we would be the temple of the Holy God. You and I. That's why our worship is so important in our heart and giving it to the Almighty. We're that temple of bringing worship. And we can come together again, and we will. That's why you get everybody together, and it's so exciting and inspiring. It's spirit-led people and all those temples together in one spot. This isn't the temple, folks. we got to run out of the building. doesn't matter. This is not God's house. This is God's house. You gotta remember that. The Holy Spirit lives in us. I, we are the houses of worship. So wherever you go, the Holy Spirit goes with you. And we are an active, moving temple. So I think as we are going through this pandemic, we wonder what to do. We believe. We live out the resurrection. We show transformation. We talk about what it's like to be reborn. This week, a couple of people were baptized here into Christ, just to let you know. I mean, great things are still happening. Lives are still being transformed. The gospel's still going out. The church and our mission is not on hold. In fact, we have opportunities to do it even more. There are people serving, people doing things that they've never done before. Praise be to God. That's what he's called us to do. So I guess my challenge for you today is you look in your own heart, in your own life. Does it, do there need to be a few tables turned over? There need to be a few salesmen pushed out. Maybe some transactional mindset where you've just kind of been going through the motions that now internally you have to look at and say, you know what? I'm going to change something about myself. I'm going to do something differently. So that's what we're calling you to do today. Look inside. 
how is my heart? Am I doing what God has called me to do? What a great challenge. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I'm grateful anytime we have an opportunity to open the word of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray in this prayer that as this message from your word goes out, that all the computers and TVs and whoever is tuning in to watch it, that the power of the word always has the power to change us. If there's been some hearts that haven't been released, if there's been some clutter in our temple, I pray, Father, today that you will come in and you'll turn some things over and that we'll make a decision to seek you, to love you, and to live that resurrected and transformed life. Sin has no place ruling in our heart. Instead, we want it to be the worship of you. And it doesn't matter whether we're in a pandemic or not. We worship you and we praise your holy and mighty name. And we pray to you today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stay safe. Be good. Make a difference in someone's life.